It's Thursday, October 31st. Happy Halloween. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Starting us off today is the dying trend of trick-or-treating. While kids are still getting their hands on sweets and we are spending more than ever on candy, the tradition of knocking door-to-door is fading in favor of alternative Halloween events like trunk-or-treats and other community celebrations. Ursula Pirano, reporter at Axios, joins us to talk about how trick-or-treating is changing. Next, we'll tell you about the most haunted hotel in Los Angeles, the Cecil Hotel. A mother threw her newborn out of a window, a man was killed by a falling woman, a serial killer lived there, and more recently, a traveling tourist was found floating in the water tank of the hotel after people had complained of funny-tasting water. My producer, Victor Wright, joins us for some of the strange happenings at the Cecil Hotel. Finally, another creepy story. With shades of the Michelle Carter case, a former Boston College student has been charged with involuntary manslaughter after prosecutors said she engaged in a campaign of abuse and urged her boyfriend to commit suicide, which unfortunately he did, only hours before his college graduation. Maria Kramer, reporter for the Boston Globe, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. In a lot of communities, there are other factors contributing towards that. Some cities have even begun to set age limits or official trick-or-treating hours for the holiday, which really just adds strain to what can already be sort of a difficult endeavor. Joining us now is Ursula Pirano, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us, Ursula. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's Halloween, so we're going to be talking about a couple of different things. Right now, we're going to talk about the dying trend of trick-or-treating Although it might not necessarily be dying, it might be evolving, it might be changing, and uh, people are going different places. But start us off, Ursula, what do we know about how trick-or-treating has been on a decline, it seems like? So sort of the big picture here is that year after year, communities across America are claiming to see less trick-or-treaters, giving a lot of people this impression that the holiday is fading out. But the reality is, is that kids are still participating, they're just taking their business elsewhere. A lot of families have begun to move towards alternative, more centralized events, trunk or treats, for example, which are hosted in a contained area and are often more convenient for families, especially those from rural communities who may have struggled to do the whole house to house tradition. And these events are also arguably safer, which, of course, was always a huge concern for parents on Halloween. A lot of times when people think of whatever the traditional trick-or-treating thing is, they're thinking about suburban neighborhoods where you can go down one block and hit 10 houses, turn right, hit another block and hit another 10 houses. I mean, that's kind of what everybody really thinks of when we're thinking of trick-or-treating. And it's different everywhere. You know, in rural towns, it's different. And in urban cities, it's different. You mentioned trunk-or-treats was a thing that was gaining popularity. Can you explain what that is? Because I had never heard of that one before this. Yeah, so they sort of get together and lots of people bring their cars, literally open up their trunk. People will decorate, try and make it look spooky the same way you would decorate your front yard. So sort of keeping with that traditional Halloween feel. But instead of going door to door, you just walk trunk to trunk when kids are able to say hello, say trick or treat all the same and receive their candy. But there's no knocking. It's a little more contained. It's easier for parents to keep an eye out on their kids. That's actually a pretty good idea. Keep it you know, small. It could be your local community and everything. So that's actually kind of a cool idea. We've seen how all of this has been changing over the years. I know mall trick or treating was pretty big for some time, but now 
there's a decline in malls. So <laughs> I don't know how, how well that's going to pan out. But I just remember when I was a kid, you know, as soon as it was dark, we'd hit the neighborhood, we'd go out and we wouldn't come back until like 10 o'clock. You know, we'd spend hours out there. And I think that's also another part of it. A lot of times right now, parents will take their kids maybe once or twice around the block really quick and short. And that's kind of the end of it. Growing up, I used to get together with my friends and go house to house. I lived in a very traditional suburb, so you knew a lot of your neighbors, and it was this extremely fun event. But in working on a story, you know, I talked to my dad, who still lives in that same neighborhood, and he says he just sees such a low turnout. And in a lot of communities, there are other factors contributing towards that. Some cities have even begun to set age limits or official trick-or-treating hours for the holiday, which really just adds strain to what can already be sort of a difficult endeavor for families and yeah. parents and managing if it's a weeknight, worry about school the next day, just adding those restraints only sort of further contributes towards the dying tradition. We're talking about other events that are kind of taking more prominence. One of the other things that I've noticed that happens a lot now are when a small neighborhood or a local community, they'll go the extra effort and decorate a bunch of houses and everybody kind of knows that's the place to go. So people from neighboring cities, even it could get pretty big. They'll go to that little neighborhood to trick or treat. And then that basically leaves all the surrounding areas as little candy deserts, almost, if you will. People aren't going to really go out there because they know they're going to go get really great candy, see a bunch of cool Halloween decorations in these other smaller neighborhoods. There are neighborhoods who truly get really into it. You always have that neighborhood during Christmas that puts up a ton of lights and everybody loves to drive down their street. Halloween is sort of the same way. It's become this norm for kids within a community to know which of the suburbs, which of the streets are going to have the best candy, the most kids. If you grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of retirees, you're going to know that maybe you hop over to your friend's house to do your trick-or-treating because you sincerely get more out of the holiday. It's such an interesting thing to kind of talk about just because we're seeing all this evidence. Anecdotally, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, there was 10 trick-or-treaters last year, things like that. But when we get these statistics from the National Retail Federation, they always put out the numbers on how much people are actually spending on Halloween candy. And if that's a marker, we're still spending tons of money and it seems like increasing numbers every year. So this kind of leads us to believe that, yeah, maybe the traditional trick-or-treating is dying out, but everybody is still kind of doing something, as we've been talking about in all these other places. Parents are still going to want to do this with their kids. It's just such a treasured childhood memory for everyone to dress up and walk around and just have this great night. But things evolve. And so they're sincerely just finding new avenues, things that are more convenient that fit into the typical household schedule a little bit better than trying to fit it all into one night or a school night or a work night. When Americans are seeing their doors go empty and not seeing the same numbers they used to, that just has to be taken into consideration that it's not that the holiday itself is dying. It's just that people, as you said, are evolving and finding new avenues to celebrate through. Ursula Pirano, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Two years after he built it, the Great Depression hit and the area surrounding the Cecil Hotel became what is known as Skid Row. So you have this very nice hotel right in the middle of where thousands of homeless people were living. Joining me now is my producer, Victor Wright. Thanks for being here, Victor. Thank you. It's Halloween, so we wanted to share a spooky story. We're going to be talking about the 
most haunted hotel in Los Angeles. Both Victor and I live in Los Angeles, and there's always been stories about this one hotel in particular, the Cecil Hotel in downtown LA. There's been a lot of unfortunate things and mysteries that have happened there. At least 16 different murders, suicides, unexplained paranormal events that have taken place at this hotel. And this hotel is even served up as the inspiration for American Horror Story Hotel, just for the same reason, just a bunch of unexplained craziness that has happened there. So, Victor, you've actually been to this hotel. I have not been there, but we covered it in the news extensively in 2013 in a story we'll get to in a minute. But you've been there. To be clear, I was never inside the hotel. I had a friend who was doing a photo shoot in college and she was basing it off of a bunch of mysterious murders in Los Angeles. So the Cecil Hotel was one of the biggest places that we had to go for that photo shoot. It's not in the most glamorous of places anymore. It's right in downtown L.A. It's right by Skid Row. There's a lot of homeless people around there. But that also might lead to why so many crazy, unexplained things happened there. Victor, start us off then. Tell us about the opening of the Cecil Hotel. The Cecil was built by hotelier William Banks Hanner back in 1924. And he spent about a million dollars on it. And it was a really nice art style hotel with marble lobby, some stained glass windows, palm trees and everything. Two years after he built it, the Great Depression hit and the area surrounding the Cecil Hotel became what is known as Skid Row. So you have this very nice hotel right in the middle of where thousands of homeless people were living. It grew this reputation for junkies, homeless people, runaways, criminals, and then all this other stuff happened there and it kind of created this whole persona of being the most haunted hotel in Los Angeles. So let's work through some of the suicides, some of the homicides, things that have happened there that have been pretty crazy. Just in the 30s alone, there were around six suicides. And on top of the suicides, there are also a bunch of just bizarre cases. For example, back in 1944, Dorothy Jean Purcell was a 19-year-old girl who was staying at the hotel with a man named Ben Levine. She woke up in the middle of the night with some pretty bad stomach pains. So she went to the bathroom and she gave birth to a child and she never knew that she was pregnant. She then thought that the kid was dead and decided to throw the baby out the window. It's so crazy. And then she went to court for this, but she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And she was admitted to a psychiatric hospital later for treatment. Just pretty crazy. And this one is just weird odds, I guess. I mean, this is why this persona of the most haunted hotel has been built up. In 1962, a 65-year-old man named George Giannini was walking by the Cecil Hotel when a woman named Pauline Otten jumped from the ninth floor window and fell on top of him and killed both of them instantly. Just what crazy odds that that would ever happen. And it's just a small extra creepy detail about it is that the cops actually thought that the two had committed suicide together, but they reconsidered that when they realized that if Giannini also jumped out of the building, his shoes would have fallen off midair the way Pauline Auden's shoes did. In addition to all of this stuff, it also was the home to one of the most notorious serial killers in the U.S. In the mid-80s, Richard Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker, was staying there. He lived in a room on the top floor of the hotel. He was staying there during a lot of his killing spree. Back then, he was able to stay there for $14 a night. And people say that when he'd kill somebody, he'd take the bloody clothes and throw down the trash chute 
And then he'd walk into the hotel lobby either completely naked or only in underwear. But since in the 80s, the Hotel Cecil was just complete chaos, it wasn't even like an abnormal thing going on there. People thought it was just normal. It's, uh, so, yeah. it's so crazy. But the most interesting thing that happened at the Hotel Cecil just recently was in 2013, and that is the case of Elisa Lamb. She was a Canadian student who went to go stay at the Hotel Cecil, and then she went missing. And later on, she was found on the top floor in a water tank naked, and she was dead. The hoteliers were notified of this, not necessarily of what exactly happened, but a lot of people staying at the hotel complained that their water pressure was not working. They also complained of a very funny taste in the water. So this is an old school hotel. So they have four water tanks on the top and that feeds the entire hotel. So to have a funny taste in the water, I mean, that's just so... So awful for the people staying there. They also had this video that they released, which was kind of crazy. It was surveillance video of Elisa Lamb getting into one of the elevators and acting very strange. She pushed all the buttons. She looked like she was playing hide and seek with somebody almost or somebody was bothering her. The doors wouldn't close. And later she stepped out of the elevator. And that was really the last time anybody saw her. So just a bunch of crazy stuff happening there at the Hotel Cecil And it's still there. It's still in operation. They try to do a renovation. They're calling it Stay on Main Hotel and Hostel. And I think you can get a room there for $75 a night. I would not want to stay at this place. There is a bunch of developers from New York. They signed a 99-year lease. And they're essentially trying to completely gut the inside of the hotel and scrub all of these eerie happenings so that they can try to rebuild the Cecil as something that people can actually want to stay at. That's a tough sell. I'm not going to stay there. <laughs> Thank you, Victor. Thank you. The investigation revealed that Miss Yu used manipulative attempts and threats of self-harm to control him. It also found that she was aware of his spiraling depression and suicidal thoughts brought on by her abuse, yet she persisted, continuing to encourage him to take his own life. Joining us now is Maria Kramer, legal affairs reporter at the Boston Globe. Thanks for joining us, Maria. Thank you for having me. We have an interesting story, kind of a creepy story that has shades of the Michelle Carter case, who was a woman who was texting her boyfriend, basically coaxing him into committing suicide. He committed suicide. She went to court for that. She got charged with manslaughter. I think she ended up sentenced to 15 months in jail for that. And now we have a very similar case. Maria, tell us a little bit about this one now. So this case is about a young woman named In Young Yu who was 21 and she was a junior when her boyfriend Alex Rotula was a senior at Boston College. And according to prosecutors, they were in a very tumultuous, very toxic relationship that lasted about 18 months and culminated with his suicide. He jumped off of a garage in Roxbury the day he was supposed to graduate. And what prosecutors have alleged is that In Young Yu essentially drove him to this. She repeatedly sent him texts telling him to kill himself at the world would be better off without him, that his family would be better off without him. And they've described it as a domestic violence case that ended with this tragic death. One of the creepiest moments of this, as you mentioned, it was on the day that he was about to graduate that he jumped off the parking garage. They said that you was somewhere nearby. She tracked his phone and through witnesses and even interviews that she gave, they said that she was standing by watching him as he jumped. 
the context of that changed a little bit. We reported, speaking to law enforcement officials who spoke anonymously, that she told authorities, I went there to try and stop him. So initially, yes, it was presented in a way that made it sound like she was just watching. And then the story's been complicated a little bit by her statements anyway. And you can only rely on her statements because nobody else was there to witness it. She actually tracked him down to try and stop him from doing what he did. Tell us a little bit about the text messages, because from what I've been reading, there was 75,000 text messages that were sent between Mm -hmm. them and close to 50,000 were just from her. We don't know much about these texts. What we know about them is that many of them were filled with demands that he kill himself and that these texts, what prosecutors say, underscore their argument that she was isolating him from his family and his friends and just chipping away at him and his self-esteem and his psyche. They used very strong words to describe her behavior and the way that she essentially just destroyed him. District Attorney Rachel Rollins was quite adamant about the way that she stated this and how much responsibility she felt this young woman bore for the death of Alexander Ortula. One of the other wrinkles in this story is that after he died and she withdrew from college, but she went back to South Korea. So she's actually there now and they're hoping that she would voluntarily come back, but they might have to go through different methods of having to extradite her out here. It's not going to be very simple, and it could take several weeks, if not months, to get her to come back here. They have said that they will pursue all avenues to get her back, and they are determined to get her back into the country so that she will face arraignment. They have said that they are in touch with a lawyer who has not been identified, who is in touch with her about basically getting her back here. But we don't know much more beyond that and whether or not she would fight extradition. So at this point, it looks like it's a conversation. It looks like it's a negotiation even that they're trying to have trying to get her back here. But whether it escalates into a real legal fight that becomes an international legal fight, we've yet to see that. As I said at the beginning of this, this story has shades of the case against Michelle Carter when she was texting with her boyfriend, Conrad Roy, and he committed suicide also. She was sentenced to 15 months. Did that case set a precedent for something like this? I think that's an excellent question. We know that teenagers and young people are committing suicide at a higher rate than before. We know that depression is caused by, in large part, what's going on on social media. They're very vulnerable to it, more than any other generation before them. And we're in uncharted territory in many ways. I mean, you could see more charges like this coming down. In Young Yu and Michelle Carter are unusual right now. Could they become more common? It'll be fascinating to watch. And for a lot of free speech advocates, very frightening because are there constitutional problems? with charging people for basically being jerks or even being abusive, but have they committed an actual crime? And we still don't have a lot of information in this case. We still can't answer that question because we don't know the breadth of the text. We don't know everything she said. But yes, like you said, it is not exactly the same as Michelle Carter in the sense that she was in a physical relationship with this young man. They saw each other a lot more than Michelle Carter and Conrad Roy saw each other. And also there were many witnesses to the abuse and uh, much more documentation of the abuse. I don't think Michelle Carter was accused of perpetrating domestic violence so much as leading somebody to his death. It's going to be an interesting case to follow just for that, for everything we were just talking about just now. And then on top of that, you know, the whole extradition angle of it, if that has to go on that front. So definitely something to keep an eye on. Maria Kramer, legal affairs reporter at the Boston Globe. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.